0: Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2 I want to bring a message this morning entitled, Unapproved Workman Would you stand for the reading of God's Word please? And actually we're going to back up to verse 11 uh, And read through the balance of the chapter Unapproved Workman Paul writing to Timothy says, The saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him We will also live with him if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart is holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Father, we're so grateful for this opportunity and this privilege that we have to come to church. To open your word, the bread of life. To allow your Holy Spirit to take your word. To feed us. That we might be conformed more to the image of Christ. What a privilege and an honor it is to be here. And God, I pray that you would remove every distraction from our hearts and minds. That we might focus in upon you. What you have for us. God, give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to the church. Lord, we thank you for the call to salvation. Not only the call to salvation, but the call to sanctification. That our lives would be set apart for your use. That we might live our lives as approved workmen. Father, I pray that you would bring conviction this morning where perhaps men and women are wasting their lives or pursuing those things that men of the world pursue. That you would have mercy upon us and forgive us and Lord, renew our vision of what you want us to be. Again, we pray for you to work here in the hearts of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's said that from very early on, even in childhood, Robert Louis Stevenson knew what he wanted to be with his life. He wanted to be a writer. Now, of course, he went on to write such works as Kidnapped and Treasure Island. But he also discovered at a very young age that being a writer demanded discipline and hard work. In fact, he knew that there were going to be two disciplines he would need in his life and that he would need to develop. First of all, he would need to feed his mind on the works of great writers, and secondly, he would need to imitate those great writers. He would need to practice writing his own stories using skills that he learned from these other authors. And so it's said that Stevenson always had two books tucked under his arm each day everywhere he went. Under one arm would be some classic by a well-known writer. And under the other arm would be tucked a blank journal so that as he experienced moments of inspiration throughout the day he could take notes and and begin filling out those stories that that he uh, felt like writing. Robert Louis Stevenson worked hard at writing because he wanted to be an approved workman when it came to literature. Folks, I want to ask you a question this morning Is it your desire to be an approved workman for God? More than anything else in life Do you desire for your life to be an honorable vessel for the Lord? I want us to see this morning some requirements That are going to be involved in that But now before we get into that I want you to notice first of all something about the context You'll notice That Paul is writing to a young man by the name of Timothy Timothy is a a young believer that Paul met there in Acts chapter 16 when he was going out on his his, uh, missionary journeys And Timothy was well spoken of by others Because even at a young age, he was already displaying a unique devotion to the Lord. And so Paul was encouraged to take Timothy along on his missionary journeys. And from that point on in their lives, Paul was like a father in the faith to young Timothy. He was a mentor to him. He discipled him. And Paul is writing these words to young Timothy, but I want you and me to understand this morning that that what he's writing applies to all of us. Because you see in the Bible there is not one standard for the clergy and another standard for the laity. I think that's a tragedy that started somewhere early in church history. In fact, you only have to begin reading there in Revelation 2 and 3 when the Lord was addressing certain churches we read about a group known as the Nicolaitans. Scholars wrestle with who the Nicolaitans were, but, but one conclusion they come to that in all likelihood the Nicolaitans had begun to introduce two different standards. One for the clergy And one for the laity The clergy were to be holy The clergy were to be approved workmen The clergy were to serve God with all their lives And then the laity could have more of a lax principle at work in their lives Well that's not the Bible In fact 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13 says That we are all to be holy because the Lord our God is holy And so we're all to be a reflection of His grace and what He's done in our lives through salvation. We're all to be a testimony. We're all to be holy. We're all to be approved workmen. Well, what's going to be involved in that? That's what I want to speak to you about this morning. I want to mention uh, three different things. First of all, if I'm going to be an approved workman, I must guard my doctrine and my words. And so I want to edit that point coming up on the screen to include doctrine along with words. Guard your doctrine and your words. And you'll see how both of those uh, tie together so closely because after all, what comes out of our mouth is what is in our heart. Look at verse 14, Paul tells him to remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Down in verse 16 he says, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. And then in verse 23 he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies you know that they breed quarrels. To be the Christian workman that Christ would have you to be, you must get a handle on your doctrine, what you believe, and also your words, how you express what you believe. Because folks both matter deeply. What you believe matters. And what you say matters. Words matter. Speech matters. I want you to think about this a moment with me this morning. Man uh, alone in God's creation is given the unique ability to communicate with languages. It is a very unique uh, gift and a great privilege, a great honor to be able to communicate with one another the way we do with words. But we've got to be very careful how we use our words. I think probably in this area, more than any other area throughout the ages, the church has been hurt by what people do with their words. I think of the one uh, lady in the, in the church that uh, she was known in town by everybody as the town gossip and also in the church as the church gossip and one Sunday morning she got under conviction of this and so she came down during the invitation and she spoke to her pastor and said, Pastor, I'm convicted about my use of words. I want to lay my tongue on the altar this morning. Preacher said, well, ma'am, our altar's only 15 feet long, but go ahead and knock yourself out. Do your best. Our speech is to be given to God for His use. Now, there are two ways that Paul is referring to speech in this passage, and I want to mention both. The most important idea in this text uh, concerning our speech is that we are to speak truthfully about things pertaining to God. And so this is where doctrine and words kind of marry together. Speak truthfully about things pertaining to God. Now this one has special application to the ministered or, or to, uh, not only the ministered but to anybody in the church who has the responsibility of teaching the word of God. And that's why James said in James 3.1 Let not many of us be teachers knowing, brethren, that we shall receive the stricter judgment. We need to be very careful what we say with our language and especially when we're talking about God and God's activity in the world and what God has done. Now... Christianity was very young at this point as the church was growing and getting established. There were those who were coming into the church and they were upsetting the faith of some people by what they were teaching. Now as we'll see in a moment, some were teaching that there was no resurrection of the dead. Others were teaching that Jesus Christ is not coming back a second time for his bride, the church. And still others were teaching that Jesus was not really a man. He only appeared to be a man. In reality, he was only a a phantom or a ghost. That cult was known as the Gnostics. Now these were just some of the heresies that were being taught in the first and second century and and they all had dire consequences for those who believed them as heresy still today has dire consequences. Now as a pastor, Timothy would have had to have confront all of those false teachings. And what Paul is wanting Timothy to understand is the worst possibility of speech, the worst possibility of of the use of language would be that if we were to speak falsely about God. All the way back in the Ten Commandments there in Exodus 20 God taught right up at the front end of those Ten Commandments the, the first half deal with the vertical relationship with God and, and the second half deal with the horizontal relationship with one another and, and right up front God told His people that His name was to be holy and, and that His people were not to use the name of the Lord their God in vain. Now we think of that today as combining God's name with profanity. But using the the name of the Lord in vain is is much more broad than that. Anytime we just kind of flippantly or loosely or, or casually throw the name of God around, essentially we're guilty of using the name of the Lord in vain. When we talk about God, it ought to be with great respect. Now beyond that, the approved workman must be careful what he or she believes and and, and teaches concerning doctrine. the, The truth about God. Why? Because false doctrine dishonors God. It misrepresents Him, what He's like, and what He does in the world. And nobody likes to be misrepresented. And so look at verse 14 and verse 16. Paul points out to Timothy that there are dire consequences to to misrepresenting God. He mentions four things here. That it is useless, it is unprofitable. Secondly, worse yet, it leads to the ruin of those who listen. Thirdly, it leads to ungodliness. And fourthly, it will spread like gangrene. Now all of this talk that he is mentioning here refers to arguing over speculative matters of theology. Some people like to argue about things that that we're really not told about in the Bible. Now folks, I want you to understand something. It is healthy to learn and discuss what we are told in the Bible. In fact, there are not nearly enough of those kinds of discussions today. There are healthy discussions that can and should take place as, as we try to come to a better understanding of God's Word, but there are some discussions that are absolutely pointless. I think of uh, some of the theologians in the Middle Ages, for example, that argued about how many angels could dance around on the head of a needle. Well, who cares? It doesn't matter. Why even speculate or argue about such foolish things as that? There's other discussion that can even be disrupting and damaging. If we were to go beyond what the Word of God says and start teaching our own traditions or opinions and elevating those above the Word of God, we could damage the faith of some. And and this is what Jesus said the Pharisees were doing there in His day. They were elevating their traditions above even the very word of God. In Mark chapter 7 he talks about that and he gives that illustration of the fact that we are to honor our father and mother. And we're to take care of them. But, but Jesus said to them, he said, you, you have your nice little neat ways of getting around the Word of God and teaching your tradition. Because you say, whatever you were going to use to help your family or help your mom and dad, it now has become Corban that is dedicated to God. And so it's off limits to be used. And he said in that way you set aside the commandments in the word of God in order to elevate your traditions. Well that hurts people. False doctrine is very damaging. I've told you before it matters what you and I believe. Folks, it is not merely enough to be sincere in whatever we believe. It matters also what we believe. Truth matters. Now, I realize we live in a postmodern world where people want to say, you know, everything's just kind of relative. What is true for me may not be true for you. But have you noticed? We don't live in a very relative world. We live in a very absolute world, don't we? I mean, it it seems tragically uh, people only want to throw away relativism when it comes to theology or philosophy. But in the world, we live in a very absolute world. Take, for instance, if you were to go with some tour group up to a high building that that had some lookout and the tour guide said, now, you know, some of us are going to jump off. And if some of you jump off, you know what? You're going to go splat and you're going to die. But others of you, you can jump off, and you're just kind of gonna kind of float up with the clouds in the sky. You know, uh, the truth of gravity, the principle of gravity, may not hold equal for everybody. Well, I don't advise you put that to the test. You jump off, and guess what? Unless you manipulate gravity in some way uh, with a parachute or something, you're going to die. You go down here at a food line this afternoon, buy your groceries for next week, and you spend about $75, $76. Hey, wouldn't it be great to get away with just $75 or $76? But you get up there to the cashier, and and she says, that'll be $76, ma'am, or $76, sir. Uh, and you hand them uh, $50, and and they say, well, still need some more. And no, 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 you know, this is relative for me. This is truth for me, I've... I've paid you uh, the $50, is $76 you're asking for. You wouldn't get away with that, would you? Or you get out on 85, run about 78 miles an hour in your car in a 65 zone, highway patrolman pulls you over, writes you a ticket, and you say, Sir, you know what? The way I view things, the way I look at truth for me, I was doing just fine. I was obeying the law. You going to get away with that? Absolutely not. We live in a very absolute world, right? But again, the irony, when it comes to theology or spiritual things All of a sudden people want to say, oh, you know, everything's kind of up for grabs No, it's not It matters what you believe Truth matters Truth is truth, what is true is true It's not relative, truth matters And so when it comes to the scripture You can believe all the wrong things about God and about salvation And guess what, one of these days you're going to stand before Him And you're going to pay the ultimate price As you hear, depart from me, I never knew you Look at verse 17, there are two men, They're, they're named here Uh, They were falsely teaching uh, that the resurrection had already passed. Verse 17 says that they had definitely gone astray and in teaching what they were, they were upsetting the faith of some. Now now scholars believe what these two men were teaching is closely akin to what Paul addressed there in 1 Corinthians 15. They were actually denying a, a literal, real, physical resurrection. And they were spiritualizing the resurrection to say that if you were a believer in Christ you were already spiritually raised and this spiritual awakening or resurrection is all that you had. In other words, there's no future hope beyond the grave whatsoever. Now certainly the resurrection ought to change us now. We're new men and women in Christ because He's alive. And to be in Christ means that That we're new creations. The old life is dead and behold the new life has come. But you can't stop with that. You can't just spiritualize the resurrection and, and deny a physical resurrection. It's important to see in the Word of God that Christ was literally raised from the dead. He's literally in heaven preparing a place for us. And we will literally be raised and be with Him for all of eternity. Amen? Aren't you glad heaven's a real place? And so again, you can't just spiritualize these things. Because that would mean there's really no such thing ultimately as eternal life. And so you can see how these two men were upsetting things. And, and Paul said their false doctrine would be like gangrene. Gangrene happens, tissue dies because life-giving blood is not giving to that, giving to that, that tissue. But if, if that's not cut away, then it will spread and infect others so again what he's saying to us in the church If we want to be approved workmen before God It matters what we believe and what we say about God We've got to guard our doctrine And we've got to guard our words Are we speaking truthfully about God? Are we telling men and women what they need to know About salvation in Christ and the Christian life? Are we honoring to the word of God? You see my life is to sit under judgment of the word of God God I don't sit in judgment over the Word of God the Word of God interprets my life I'm under the authority of the Word of God as you are and so again it matters there is no way that if we're running around talking falsely about spiritual matters and, and leading people astray and saying, Well, you know, the Bible does say that, but, but you know what? I don't believe that. And, and here's some, if we upset the faith of some, Paul is saying to Timothy, You can't be an approved workman. I love what Dr. Billy Graham said on one occasion early in his ministry. He said, you know what, there are some things hard to understand in the Bible simply because uh, God's Word comes from an infinite God, an eternal God. And I'm just a finite man. And, and as I learn more truth, I will come to discover what God's saying in His Word. And He said, for those things that I don't understand right now, you know what, I'm going to accept by faith that this is God's Word and I'm going to preach it. And you know what, God's blessed His ministry for that. If we're going to be approved workmen, not needing to be ashamed, we need to handle carefully and accurately and respect God's Word. Well, a second thing about speech concerning this, an approved workman is to guard against all corrupt speech. Look with me over in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says when it comes to our talk about one another, he says there in verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. In verse 29, he says, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good, for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. In verse 31 he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and uh, slander be put away from you with all malice. And then you also get over into Colossians chapter 4. And there in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6 Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so everybody needs to be asking themselves, how do I use my words, not only about God, but how do I speak to other people and about other people? Do I engage in gossip? Do I engage in slander? Do I engage in malicious things about other people? How about there in the office place? Do I edify people with my words or do I tear them down? Do I bring strife and division into the school classroom? Do I bring strife and division into the office place with my words? Or do my words edify and build up? Am I a wholesome person in my language? Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, if we're going to stand before God one day as approved workmen, these things matter. These are not trivial matters. It it makes a great deal of difference what I do with my words. Back when I was in high school and in college working for Harris Teeter in the back room there at Harris Teeter where we'd be unloading trucks and getting a lot of stuff ready to go out on the counters. I'll never forget probably one of the men back there, senior adult men, that probably had the most corrupt speech of anybody, one of the most profane men of anybody, was a deacon in a local Baptist church. What a shame. What an embarrassment to the body of Christ. So evaluate your words. Do you honor the word of God? Do you honor the truth of God with your language? And do you edify others what you say about them? Are you guilty of slander and gossip and and malicious things? We need to evaluate our words if we want to stand approved before God in this matter. Second thing. Second thing I want you to notice, if we're going to be approved workmen, make a holy presentation of yourself to God. Look at verse 15 and then we'll begin reading down in verse 20 and 21. In verse 15, Paul says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then over in verse 20 he says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now the King James Version of verse 15 says, study, but with changes in language, now that's not really a strong enough word that the new American standard says, be diligent to present yourself. The ESV says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Those are better renderings. What he's saying here is everything about our lives is to be presented to God for His use. Reminds me of Romans 12.1. Paul said in Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. Holy which is your spiritual act of worship. I want you to think about what Paul is saying there in that great theological treatise known as the book of Romans. What has Paul been doing? It's it's his most doctrinal uh, letter. And he's been establishing from early on in that letter how we have all sinned against a holy God and our sin has offended a holy God and we are guilty. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we're told there that the wages of sin is death. And so he introduces the bad news first. But then he introduces us to the good news that God has given his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins. And and there on the cross, Jesus Christ bore all of the wrath of God against sin. And he died in your place and in my place that we might be justified, that we might be reconciled to a holy God, and that we might have peace before God. And then he says, beginning there in verse 12, Now in light of this, in light of what God has done that you might be saved, aren't you glad that the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Aren't you glad that when God looked at the sin of mankind, He didn't turn His back on us and say, Well, you know what, they just get whatever they deserve. God intervened in my behalf and your behalf. And so Paul is saying, in light of that, in in light of the mercies of God, you're to present yourself a holy sacrifice to God. He says, I urge you, I beg you, I I beseech you that, that you make that holy offering of yourself to God. That's part of your spiritual act of worship. Your worship is not just what you do in a house of God on Sunday morning, but when we leave here, everything we do this week as we present ourselves to God is an act of our worship of God. And he says, Timothy, if you want to be an approved workman, That's the attitude with which you need to live your life. Think of verse 15 this way, bringing all of your energies toward one ultimate goal of of standing before God approved. That word approved also carries with it the idea that, that you've withstood the test of life and you've been approved. We test steel and we test iron before they go into these big tall buildings. And aren't we glad they test it? number of years ago, I was watching some documentary on TV about the car industry and they were doing a little highlight on, on General Motors, how they were taking their vehicles, new models out into the uh, desert. It was either Arizona or Nevada and out there in the sands, they were, they were running them hot and they were grinding through the gears on the transmissions. And so they were, they were testing out some of their new transmissions to see if they would hold up. So the consumer, when they bought them, they wouldn't be buying a lemon. There's many illustrations like that that could help us understand this word approved. But but I think those suffice to give us the picture here. And he's saying to Timothy, an approved workman has, has withstood the test in the trials of life. Some of you have gone through pretty drastic things in your life. You've lost loved ones, maybe a spouse or a child. You've lost your job, your career, you've lost your finances. Maybe some of you have just gone through horrendous trials and tribulations in life and, and, and through it all, by God's grace, you've kept your eyes on Jesus. And through it all, your faith did not weaken, but what? Your faith strengthened. Because you learned the sufficiency of God's grace. That's what he's talking about here. As we present ourselves to God wholeheartedly, not cafeteria style, you know, I'll give God a little of this and a little of this, but boy, I want to keep this for myself. And No, 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 we give ourselves to God wholeheartedly as that drink offering poured out and we learn through all of that that God is faithful and he watches after us. And as we go through trial and tribulation, God is faithful even sometimes when we're not. And we come through the fires stronger than before with that approved workman that God can use. Amen? And the great promise in verse 19 here is that the Lord knows those who are His. Isn't that great? Jesus said in John 10... I'm the good shepherd, I know my sheep, I know them by name and and they know me and and I give unto them eternal life. God knows those who are His. Now scholars say what Paul is referring to here most likely is is that passage where where it talks about this back in Numbers 16, Korah's Rebellion. Where Korah and all that multitude rebelled against Moses and Aaron And and the ground opened up and swallowed them And the lesson there was God knows those who are his As we present our lives to Him, a living sacrifice and keep our eyes on Jesus and and guard our doctrine and our life and our words and we faithfully serve Him and and God works in and through our lives, even through the difficulties and the trials and tribulations of life and we grow in our faith and grow in our constancy uh, with God, our, our relationship with Him. God does His work in us. God knows those who are His, who are genuine or not. God knows those who are just fake professors and they they profess their faith in the Lord just as long as everything's good. But they don't stay true to the Lord through the difficulties in life. Why? Because they weren't really born again. God knows the difference in people. That's what Paul is saying here. And so he, he gives this analogy of a large house beginning there in verses 19 and 20. Uh, a typical house has some valuables in it. You have gold and silver. You've got valuables, maybe some, some china, some antiques. And you honor those valuables by bringing them out for special occasions like maybe when you're having the preacher over for lunch. Then you have just the ordinary and the common, the wood and clay vessels. This is for when you're having the, your deacon over to lunch, right? I'll just use the dog bowl for that, right? Paul adds that some of these vessels in a large house back then, to picture this, this large estate back in ancient times, there would be all kinds of vessels in that house, just like in ours. Some things for honorable use, some for just common things, some even for dishonorable things. I don't want to be too descriptive here, but commentators talk about what he's probably referring to there. Uh, You ask some of the old-timers in the church to to talk about their parents and grandparents and things they would do in the house, you know, before indoor plumbing, uh, containers they'd have under their bed at night so they didn't have to make that middle-of-the-night trek out to the outhouse. Dishonorable things. And and he says here, if a man will, will cleanse himself of these things, Just the common and mundane and profane things. If if he'll turn away from that, he'll be that approved workman for good use. Amen? Folks, isn't, isn't that what you want to be? I know I want to be that. Anything in my life that might be considered unclean, anything in my life that would not be pleasing to the Lord, anything in my life that I would hesitate to present to the Lord, Paul says, turn away from that. And make that holy presentation of everything in your life, everything your thoughts, your motives, your words, your deeds. Cleanse yourself of, of, of those, things that would, those things that would hurt your testimony You see, a Christian doesn't lose his salvation But he can sure lose his testimony, right? Deal with those things whereby you, uh, you would lose your testimony Stay on track for the Lord. As 1 Peter 3:18 says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Make sure your life is clean before him and daily dedicated to him and then guess what? Is that's the case. You'll be that approved workman. Third thing Paul wants Timothy to understand is that we need to pursue proper goals. Look at what he begins saying there in verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What are your goals in life? For that matter, what should a Christian's goals be in life? Do goals really matter? I think the Lord assumes that there's going to be passions and pursuits in our life. But are are our passions and pursuits man centered or God centered? What's the substance of them? Too many people are just living for the same thing the average man on the street is living for. They're pursuing, so many people in the church are just pursuing the same thing in life the lost man in the world is pursuing. What a shame. Folks, there's supposed to be a difference in us. I I realize there's common pursuits. We all want to lay up in store for our own families and take care of our families and and look to the future. But beyond that, there ought to be some goals and pursuits in a Christian's life that are very distinct and separate from, from those of a man in the world. Don't waste your life. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, these things your contemporaries are pursuing, common things in life, youthful lust or whatever else it might be, youthful passions, you need to turn away from what so many of your contemporaries are chasing after and you need to pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace. Let's think about those a minute. What's righteousness? Righteousness is faith with legs on, right? How we live out in the everyday world, what we say and hear that we believe, that's righteousness. The Bible says we're to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. James says if we're hearers only, we're deceiving ourselves. Living out our faith, that's righteousness. That's what we admire so much about all the saints in the Bible. The way they lived. Righteousness isn't some holier-than-thou attitude. Righteousness is simply living out your faith in practical everyday ways. Even small acts of obedience. I think of, of Daniel and Moses. They didn't set out to have their names written in Holy Scripture. They simply wanted to be men who obeyed God, lived out their faith. Put into practice what they said they believed. And God used them in mighty ways. That, my friends, is righteousness. Are you and I righteous in that sense? small acts of obedience. In our relationships, in our decisions, in our choices, in our priorities, in our pursuits. Are we righteous? He says, Timothy, also pursue faith. Pursue faith. You can actually pursue faith. Grow in your faith. How in the world do you do that? The simplest way to do that is start reading the Bible. The Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. As we read the Bible and see how God dealt with people, we learn how God wants to deal with us. We start relating to God every day on principles we find in the Word of God. And so as we do that, our, our faith grows. He says, Timothy, pursue love. Of course there's love of God and love of men That's the two great commandments Jesus talked about in Matthew 22 The greatest commandment is this To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, body The second commandment like it Love your neighbor as yourself He says we need to be pursuing that That's the goal That's a proper goal for a believer And Then pursue peace I assume he's not talking to Timothy about peace with God because Timothy already experienced that through coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He's probably talking here about peace of God. Keeping a clean slate with God, staying confessed up, repenting of sins, going to God daily, enjoying that peace of God that we have because we have peace with God. And then also peace with others. The Bible says as far as it's possible with you and me, we're to be at peace with all men. Now we know as we live out the principles of the Bible, we're going to make enemies out in the world. Because the scripture says the message of the cross is an offense to unbelievers. But folks, that doesn't mean we have to add to the... We're not to become offensive. Some people think becoming offensive, somehow or another, that's some badge of honor or spirituality. Bible doesn't, doesn't tell us to go out and have a goal to be offensive. We're, we're trying to be at peace with all men. But as we stay true to the Word of God, the, the message of the cross that we preach is an offense to many. But we're to seek to be at peace with people. To show them Christ, you see, he's saying these are the proper pursuits of a Christian who wants to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. And sadly, so many Christians have taken their eyes off of that. And again, we're just pursuing after things that that a lost man in the world is pursuing. We need to examine our pursuits. What are we really living for? Is living for Jesus more important than than living for the world? Is standing before Him one day and, and, and hearing His approval, is that more important than gaining the approval of men now? I hope so for you and me. And see, the beauty of living a life that way is what Paul was able to say in chapter 4. He said to Timothy in chapter 4, I've fought the good fight, I've kept the faith, I've finished my course. Paul had displayed the proper pursuits in life. All of this is involved in being an approved workman. You see what he's getting at here, ladies and gentlemen? Being an approved workman doesn't just happen. Too many Christians are saved and satisfied and they're sitting back on the premises when they ought to be standing on the promises. We're saved by grace, only by grace, not anything we've done. And yet the Bible says we're to make that presentation of ourselves to God and we're to pursue after things daily that He would have us to pursue. God-centered things. Because it doesn't just happen by osmosis or by accident. You've got a purpose To live a godly life. Purpose to stand approved one day. Guard your doctrine. Guard your words. Make that holy presentation. Pursue the right goals in life. Don't just live as the typical Christian. Who's just going through life marking time. What will be will be. They never witness, they never serve, never go on mission, never really roll up their sleeves in the Christian life and get involved. Saved and satisfied, just coasting. What a shame for a blood-bought Christian to live his or her life that way. Jesus gave His life for us we're bought not with silver and gold but with the blood of Jesus Christ and because of that we need to be different we need to live our lives as approved men I want to challenge you this morning to look at how you're living your Christian life each day is there any sense of purpose in your Christian life Any sense of dedication to to Christian devotion and growth? Are you growing in your understanding of doctrine, of God's Word? And and are you guarding your life, things like your thoughts and your words? Are you making that holy presentation or, or is it that cafeteria style? You keep certain things back for yourself or are you giving it all to God? Are you pursuing Christ-like goals? Don't go through every day just living your life by accident. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Then we find that everything else in life falls into proper perspective. Amen? Would you stand please? Our hymn of invitation be on the screens behind me. Has God been working in your life maybe the past days, weeks, months convicting you of sin and your need of Christ? I'd love to talk with you this morning about conversion. You need to be saved if you've never had that experience. I'd love to pray with you about that. If you've been saved, but maybe you'd be honest enough to say, God, you know, this morning, preacher's really talking about me. I'm just kind of sitting back saved and satisfied. But God, I want that to change. I want to live my life from this moment on by your grace as an approved workman. I want to give attention to my heart, my mind, my words, my actions, my ministry. Help me, God. You know, that's a prayer He's ready to answer. When we start praying prayers like that, that's praying according to the will of God. And 1 John 5, 15 says, this is the confidence that we have. When we ask anything according to the will of God, He hears us. And if He hears us, we have the request that we ask of Him. God, I want to live as an approved workman. Make that your prayer this morning.